Uh, let me mention to you all tonight that Gail, uh, I think it was you, put these together today. Um, this is a prayer card that lists um, all the different servicemen that in some way, shape, or form are connected to Grace of Anne. And uh, if you'd like one, they're going to be right up here. So grab one afterwards, and it'll be a little reminder that you can pray for those different servicemen. Uh, We're going to start reading tonight the Word of God in uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, we'll read to the end, and then we will consider the Word of God. You all follow along as I read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, in this section of Jonah, oftentimes uh, people become focused on certain questions concerning some of the details of the story, such as, was Nineveh really a city that required three days to traverse it? Scholars think that means it'd be a, a mile of about 60 miles, in, or a city about 60 miles in circumference, or a radius, or whatever that is. Uh, another detail that people get questioned about is, um, uh, did the entire population really repent? I mean, that's what the scriptures say, but I mean, let's, you know, come on, let's be logical. Did every single man in Nineveh actually repent and put on sackcloth? 
Or they get caught up in the question of, how is it that a God who describes himself as never changing relent from sending the calamity? Or they begin questioning about the plant. You know, what type of plant was it? Could it really grow in a day? Was it a vine or really what was it? Um, and sometimes they even get all caught up in the issue of, now, now, is this children they're talking about when it says people who can't determine their hand from the right to the left? Or is this adults? Or what, who is that? Because 120,000, that's kind of a big city if it's just children. Well, let me make a comment. I believe the study of the details, by all means, is certainly important. Um, but I believe there's a danger in getting caught up in the details that we really miss the theme and the message that we find in Jonah. Now, having said that, let me make one comment concerning one detail, because I don't want you to leave here tonight um, wondering about it. And that is the one, how can a God who describes himself as never changing uh, somewhat seem like he changes in this story? Well, the reality is God doesn't change in the story. Um, Your translations, I read out of the NIV, and it'll say at the end of chapter 3 and verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, some of your translations, I think, believe the New King James, uh, maybe the New American Standard uses the word relent, and I may be wrong on that, but um, the idea here uh, is really not that God changes. He actually acts in accordance with the way he's described himself prior. Uh, if you were here last week, I referenced this scripture, but I'll reference it again tonight. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 18, verses 7 and 8, we read, If at any time, this is the Lord speaking, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. What we see here is God not changing who he is. However, what we see is God acting in complete accordance with the way he's described himself. Um, And you can even look at the argument of he describes, or, or the message that he gives to Jonah is 40 days more, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Um, To me, you can see in that uh, an intention on God to see the Ninevites repent uh, in giving them 40 days. But with that issue to the side, I want you all to be informed about that because you'll find different people referencing this as a contradiction in the Scripture when it's really not, when you let scripture Scripture interpret Scripture. With that out of the way, let me really focus on what I want us to look at tonight. And that is what I believe is the theme that we find in this section of Jonah. And that is that God has compassion on sinful people. Now, let me provide a definition of compassion. Compassion is sympathetic awareness of another person's distress with a desire to alleviate it. Let me repeat that again because I've said it a lot in my head, so I, I, I catch it. But let me, let me have you catch it. Compassion is a sympathetic awareness of another person's distress with a desire to alleviate it. Now, let me paint a picture for you of compassion. Uh, about six years ago, I became a father. And um, I've had the opportunity since becoming a father uh, to either sometimes in my Uh, career. It's been uh, a couple afternoons a week. Currently, it's one day a week. I am a stay-at-home dad. Uh, My wife's a counselor. She has a little practice on Mondays, and so I have our three daughters, six, four, and one, on Mondays. Hardest day of my week. Um, But one of the things that I have learned is to detect and deal with what my wife and I describe as the five o'clock hour in our home. By five o'clock in the afternoon, 
Um, and Wednesdays are a good day because I'm here at 5 o'clock. <laughs> Don't tell my wife I said that, okay? Uh, but at 5 o'clock in an afternoon in our home, uh, the children are hungry, tired, um, and dirty. And so you can probably picture what occurs. The one-year-old, if you're not holding her, at best, she's at your feet whining and whimpering. At worst, she's sitting on the floor with her head face down screaming, okay? Um, the four-year-old and six-year-old, who are sisters that just love each other to death, at this point um, are tormenting each other in only ways that sisters can torment each other. Well, as their father, I have learned, and trust me, it is a learned behavior, to have compassion on them um, and to understand and sympathetically be aware of their distress. They're tired, they're hungry, and they're dirty. And I have a desire to alleviate it, and that is a great desire to alleviate it. However, the problem comes in, in my own life, with my sin. Because oftentimes my sin manifests itself in a response to their distress that is not compassionate. Rather, it is angry, frustrated, and sometimes just completely unconcerned. Let me give you an example. Rather than responding to their great distress of their hunger, their tiredness, and their frustration um, by saying, now don't worry, dinner's almost ready. Why don't you get some napkins and set the table? Or why don't you go wash your hands? Or why don't you do something to distract you from the fact that you're hungry, tired, and dirty? My sin will manifest itself by saying something in the form of, well, you should have eaten more dinner. Now get out of this kitchen while I finish getting dinner together. Absolutely no compassion whatsoever, rather anger and frustration. Now I believe whether you have children or not, we can all relate to having compassion for people, but also we can relate to having our sin interfere with that compassion. For instance, uh, maybe you've made a comment or maybe you've heard another Christian make a comment, something to the uh, effect of, well, those people deserve the disease they got according to the lifestyle they live. Or maybe, um, and I'll certainly admit, I have thought, if not said out loud this, well, God ought to just destroy all those pagans anyway. And at times I find myself with a, an attitude in our current situation of, well, I'm glad our military's over there. It's about time we brought some stability to that region. Because doggone it, America, you know, we're, we're God's own and we need to go teach those people what they need to do. Not an attitude with compassion. Now, I think oftentimes this, uh, this sin of ours um, can be manifested towards certain groups of sinners. Um, let me give you another example. Uh, I suspect that oftentimes... Uh, a man engaged in a heterosexual sin, such as maybe uh, previewing pornography, would be dealt with with a certain degree of compassion. A man dealing with homosexual sin would be dealt with with maybe possibly a less degree of compassion. Both are sin, yet at times we treat each one differently. Now in the book of Jonah, what we see is we see God compassionately dealing with sinful people. Now, by compassion, I'm not referencing that God changes His holy standard so that people can feel good about themselves. That's not what compassion is. 
He doesn't change the standard, his holy standard he establishes so that we can all feel kind and think, oh, well, that's not sin, it's just a psychological disorder. By compassion, I'm referencing that he is aware of the distress that sinful people are in. That the payment due mankind who has earned the wrath of God is, is death. And he desires to alleviate it by providing forgiveness of sins through Christ Jesus. Now let me show you two ways that I believe we see in this section of Jonah God compassionately dealing with sinful people. The first way that I believe God manifests his compassion towards sinful people is by telling them the truth. Notice, if you will, in chapter 3, Jonah, a second time, is given the command by God to go to the Ninevites and to proclaim his message. And in verse 4, we find a synopsis of the message that God gave Jonah. Look with me, if you will, in verse 4 on the, of chapter 3. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I suspect don't, Jonah just didn't say those words, but in the, in, the, in the written story here of Jonah, that's what is written down. But, but you can see what's happening here. God is confronting the evil and wickedness of the Ninevites. He is confronting their sin and he is communicating to them the payment that is due for sin, destruction. He clearly communicates the truth to the Ninevites. You've sinned, you need to repent, and if you don't, you will experience destruction. Now, also, we see God communicating the truth, which I believe is a manifestation of his compassion, to Jonah himself. If you look in chapter 4, Jonah is responding to God's compassion toward the Ninevites. And he responds in a sinful attitude. If you look in the first verse of chapter 4, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Jonah's not quite happy that God's not raining down fire on the Ninevites. He's quite displeased. He's greatly displeased and angry that God has relented from sending the calamity he had threatened. And in response to that, God speaks the truth to Jonah. Verses 4 through 11, in essence, is God confronting Jonah with truth. He does it in several different forms. The first of that is he poses a question to him. Look in verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And I think this is quite a powerful question. If you think about it for a second, God's doing several things with this question. First of all, he's telling Jonah, uh, Why don't you take a look at yourself, Jonah? Have you... Get your eyes off the Ninevites, Jonah, and examine your own heart. Have you any right? God is reminding Jonah of who he is and the position he holds. He's not God. He's not judge. He's not sovereign. Have you any right to be angry? He's referencing Jonah's response to God's decision. I believe God is reminding Jonah of who God is. Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Remember, You're angry at me for what I did. I'm the sovereign creator. Who are you? You are my creation. You are my servant. And why don't you take a look at yourself? Why don't you examine your own heart 
instead of being all up in the Ninevites business. Well, Jonah responds to that by going outside the city of Nineveh uh, to the, I believe it says, the east part of it, camping out, making a shelter, and sitting down waiting to see what God's going to do to the city. Well, God speaks the truth to Jonah in a second way. God provides a vine. The vine grows up, provides shade for Jonah. The next day, God provides a worm. The worm eats the vine. The vine dies. And Jonah continues what I perceive to be a temper tantrum. Uh, And he gets angry again about the vine dying. And God again questions him. Have you any right to be angry about the vine? Again, doing some of the same things with the question. Well, Jonah continues his temper tantrum, responds, I do, and I'm angry enough to die. Um, As a side note, I believe, at least I see in my own life, um, I I can relate to three-year-olds and their temper tantrums. The only difference is I think I'm a little more sophisticated in my temper tantrums than they are. And that's what I see Jonah having here. He's angry and he has a temper tantrum. Well, God then, in verses 10 and 11, proclaims and confronts the truth to Jonah. Look there, if you will. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God confronts Jonah with the truth. You're more concerned about a vine than you are humans and cattle. God manifests his compassion for sinful people by telling them the truth. Now let me try and illustrate this for you a little bit. Have you ever encountered a woman who has lipstick on her teeth? Now, if you do, you have two options of a response. One is to tell the woman that she has lipstick on her teeth. The other option is to not tell the woman that she has lipstick on her teeth. There's only two options, okay? Now, most people, I believe, perceive the second option of not telling the woman that she has lipstick on her teeth as the more compassionate of the two options that we have. I disagree. And I disagree because I've evaluated my own heart and looked at my own motive in those situations when I have not told a woman that she has lipstick on her teeth. It's embarrassing. I know she's going to be embarrassed. And I'm uncomfortable when I've caused somebody to be embarrassed. So I'd really rather not experience that that discomfort. So... I prefer not to tell her that she has lipstick on her teeth. And why? Because I'm more concerned with my own comfort than I am her distress and alleviating it. The compassionate choice is to speak the truth. It's to tell the woman, excuse me, you have lipstick on your teeth. I may be uncomfortable for a moment, but I am sympathetically aware of her distress and I have a desire to alleviate it. Now, that's kind of a silly illustration, but I think it explains how God manifests his compassion by telling the truth. Now, what do we do with that? Do we, or are we, willing to risk telling people the truth? Are we willing to risk them maybe possibly being angry with us? Are we willing to risk their rejection of us? Are we sympathetically aware of the distress of sinful people? And do we have a desire to alleviate it? Are we aware that sinful people 
have earned the wrath of God, just like us? And are we willing to communicate the good news that God has provided forgiveness of those sins through Jesus Christ to alleviate the distress that they're in? Currently in our culture right now, people have a heightened awareness of life's uncertainty. And I believe our culture has a heightened fear. Are we praying that the Holy Spirit will provide us opportunities to speak the truth that we know? To communicate to people the God that has been revealed to us, the sovereign God who is not caught off guard by any single thing that is occurring, the sovereign God who has made a way for us to experience forgiveness of sins. Now let me caution something. I am not advocating beating people up with the truth. And let me give you a picture of what I mean by that. The picture that I most easily have in my head of somebody beating somebody else up with the truth is somebody picketing in front of an abortion clinic with a poster that says, God hates murderers. That is beating somebody else up with the truth. What I am advocating is somebody being willing to engage in a conversation where they say abortion is a sin and God forgives sinners just like me. Are we willing to speak the truth, to have compassion on sinful people as our God has compassion on sinful people? Now a second thing that I believe we can, we can see here in God, in this section of Jonah about God, is that God manifests compassion towards sinful people by being patient. If you'll go back to verse 4 that we referenced in chapter 3 and to the message that God has Jonah proclaimed to the Ninevites, we find the number 40 in that message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. A month and 10 days. Now that's quite a bit of time. Why, why is it that God provides 40 days? Why not an hour? Why even bother giving him any warning at all? I mean, if he really desired just to destroy him, then why not just do it? Why even send Jonah and go to all the trouble? Well, I believe this speaks to the heart of God, and it's his patience that he has with sinful people. And we should be very grateful that he is patient with us. But there's another place we also see this patience. Go back again to what we looked at in chapter 4 of God's dealing with Jonah. Remember that in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah's greatly displeased and angry about how God has dealt with the Ninevites. Well, remember, way back in verse 1 of chapter 1, Jonah's already been disobedient. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm going to go this way and go to Tarshish. He boldly disobeys his maker. And here he is boldly angry at God for God's sovereign choice with the Ninevites. He has a very sinful attitude Toward God, And what does, what does our God do? Our God has compassion toward the sinful Jonah and it manifests itself in his patience. He presents a question to Jonah. Then he brings a whole vine and kills the vine and asks another question. Then he proclaims to Jonah. God is compassionate toward the sinful Jonah and he does it by being patient with him. <clears throat> For those of you who... Uh, well, let me also mention, Jonah even himself references the patience of God. Jonah, in uh, I, want, I want to read this to you in verse 2 of chapter 4, um, actually is referencing Exodus chapter 34. 
Let's look at what he says. He prayed to the Lord, and then verse 2 of chapter 4. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah even himself references that characteristic of God, that he is patient with us. He is slow to anger. Now God doesn't, again, he doesn't change his holy standard, but he acts patiently with sinful people, and that is the manifestation of his uh, compassion. Now, for those of you who don't know, for almost five years I was a counselor at a drug and alcohol treatment uh, facility. And uh, one of the things that was quite frequently would occur, of course, we'd have a new teenager come in. Now, this was quite a shock for them. If you can imagine a 17-year-old uh, teenager who maybe for, say, the past three years has been using drugs, chemicals, um, uh, quite regularly, all of a sudden they find themselves one day in a drug treatment program. They cannot use chemicals, but they're also in a place that I would typically describe to people when you first get there, it's kind of like a foreign country. Um, all of a sudden they're in a group therapy session from 6.30 in the morning to 6 at night, um, and there are numerous rules that they have to follow. One of these rules is that you don't use slang terms for drugs, okay? Uh, pot's not pot, pot is marijuana, okay? I won't go into the details of why we would do that, but it was a good thing for the treatment, okay? Um, now imagine for a second a 17-year-old who for the past three or whatever years has been referencing marijuana as pot, and all of a sudden they're not allowed to do that. They're going to slip up. They're going to make mistakes. Well, the staff and the people in the treatment that had been there longer would act compassionately toward these new people by being patient. The standards wouldn't change. You're not allowed to use the slang of drug terms. However, we understand where you're coming from, and we can have compassion on you and be patient. We still confront you firmly and say, excuse me, that's not appropriate. You need to change that. But we we act compassionately with them and have patience toward them. Well, I believe that's a crude example of how our God deals with us and how he manifests his compassion toward us. Well, what do we do with that? Are we willing to be patient with maybe less mature believers than ourselves? Are we willing to be patient with ourselves? as we move through the process of God sanctifying us? Do we act compassionately toward ourselves and toward others? Are we a people that manifests the compassion that God has toward sinful people in the way we deal with sinful people? <clears throat> now, God is compassionate toward sinful people. I believe that is the theme I want you all to get as you walk away from this section of Jonah. And I propose to you that we ought to be compassionate to sinful people also. Our world's in desperate need of compassion. They need people who are sympathetically aware of their distress, that we as humans have earned the wrath of God by our sin, and understand where it can be alleviated, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Are we a people that deal compassionately with sinful people? I believe we have to ask ourselves that. But I actually want to specifically challenge us tonight and um, address what I perceive. I know it's in myself, and I perceive it to be uh, the same in our culture. Um, 
I believe there is an attitude toward the Arab world, toward the Middle East, toward Muslims, and, and I use all three of those terms because I, I truly believe we really don't know what those terms mean. We, we don't have an awareness of really what that part of the world is like or, or, or what it really references. But I see in myself an adversarial attitude toward the Arab world, the Muslims, the Middle East, whatever you're going to call it. Um, and let me, let me throw a question out to you all, and you all ponder it for a moment. What is your perception of the kingdom of God in the Arab world, in the Middle East? The words that came to my mind as I pondered that was practically non-existent, minuscule, weak, dead. And I think it's that, that mindset that somewhat fuels an adversarial attitude toward that region of the world. I have an attitude of they hate me, so I hate them back. Now, how does an attitude like that coincide with a God who deals compassionately with sinful people? Sinful people like me and sinful people like them. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't coincide with that. If anything, it's the antithesis of that. Well, let me share with you an opportunity I had today. I had an opportunity to go with Jeff Simons to Second Presbyterian uh, for a luncheon where there was a man named, and i got to read his name, Mahar Faud Risk. He is the director of Awina, Arab World Evangelical Ministers Association. He's an Egyptian, and he's over here, um, the guest of Second Presbyterian at this point. Twenty years ago, this organization started to try and identify and connect the church in the Arab world. Now, let me share with you all some information that I learned today that really shocked me because I was quite surprised by it. Uh, Mahar described that the Arab world that they uh, work in is comprised of 22 different countries, 22 different Arab nations, North Africa, the Middle East, basically. And in those 22 countries, six of those countries have what he described an above-ground church. They have buildings. They have, they're out in the open. Sixteen of those countries describe, have what he describes as an underground church. They meet in homes. Um, there is no count or number or associations or anything like that. And for the past 20 years, they have been trying to find, identify, and communicate the church of the Arab world. Now, he describes, for the most part, the Arab world being 95% Muslim and about 5% Christian. Now, of that 95% Muslim, he said about 5% of that total is what he describes as the radical Muslims. And those are the ones who say, you kill, you're martyred, you're in heaven, good to go. 45% of that group he describes as just sort of lifestyle Muslims. I pray, I fast, I'm a nice guy, I'm polite, you know, yeah, okay, leave me alone, you know, whatever's going on. 50% of that 95% Muslim group, he says, have basically rejected Muslim, uh, is, is Islam. And they are hungry to know who the real God is. He said he believes in the next 10 years the Middle East is going to be a, a, an evangelistic opportunity that is flourishing. He said they have so many opportunities, they can't fill all the opportunities at this point with national Missionaries. They seek to send other Arabs that are Christians to other Arab countries. Now listen to what he said concerning the country of Iraq. 
He said they're aware of about five evangelical congregations in Iraq. I believe that was the number. It was either five or seven. We'll go with the last five. He said before the first Gulf War, they were aware of about 200 believers. Today, in 2002, he said it's over 5,000 believers. That shocked me. I have 5,000 brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq right now. And the way he described it is they've already got two teams of national missionaries. And what he means by that is Arabs from Egypt or Lebanon or some other place that are ready to go to Iraq the minute the war stops to evangelize the Iraqi people. That smacked me straight in the face. Now, you also got to remember, I've been preparing for this lesson, so I've been engrossed in the compassion of God. And all I could see and what was challenged with today was my own lack of compassion for this entire region of the world. My attitude has been adversarial to them, and yet my God is compassionate towards sinful people, and praise God He is because I'm one of those sinful people. Now, my challenge that I want to throw out to you tonight Since we have a God who is compassionate towards sinful people, I want to challenge us tonight, within the next seven days, choose one moment and fast from either food or entertainment or sleep and get on your knees and pray that the kingdom of God will come forth in Iraq. Because our God is the God who brings good to those who love him out of war, out of whatever's going on. But I was convicted of that today. My God is a God who has compassion on sinful people, and I ought to be a person who has compassion on sinful people. And one way I can do that is pray for the expansion of the kingdom of God in a place where I have typically had a sinful attitude, an adversarial attitude. So I leave you with that challenge, and I pray that you will take that on. And take one moment in the next seven days and fast from all that we have, all the sleep we get, all the entertainment we engage in, or all the food we eat. And if you're like me, the food that you probably ought not eat anyway. And fast from it for a moment and go before our Maker and pray that His kingdom will expand in Iraq. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am, I am grateful and humbled before you that you are a God who has compassion on me, a sinner. Father, I thank you for the word that you gave us, the truth that you gave us in your word that convicts our heart. And Father, I am eternally grateful that you are patient with us. I am grateful that you are a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounds in love because I, I fear to think where I would be if you were not that type of God. Father, I do pray that your kingdom will expand all over this world and specifically I pray, Father, that through the evil of war, glory will be given to you and you will draw men to you and you will expand your kingdom in Iraq. I thank you again, Father, for our church. Father, I thank you for the men and women of our congregation who, as we pray now, are out knocking on doors in this community, seeking to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will go before them 
And I pray, Father, that you will bless their efforts. I do lift up Jimmy and Susie Young. I pray, Father, that as you bring them back to us in the next few weeks, Father, that you will, you will challenge this church to be a church that has compassion towards sinful people. And we pray all these things in the name of the most holy Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And uh, remember, there's some prayer cards up here for the military people connected to this congregation.